prayer together. Lord, uh, it's good to be together, uh, to be in your house uh, with, with, with our family, God. Um, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. And God, I just ask that uh, you would help us to be open and ready to receive whatever it is that you want us to hear. Um, I pray that we would be able to uh, approach the word with uh, a sense of anticipation and excitement, uh, knowing that you speak through it and um, that there's great things for us to learn. And I just pray that you'd be with us as we wrestle through it and think about it this morning. Give us your insight, Lord, and your direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, St. Paul's. Um, so if you were here last week, Hopefully you remember that we started our Kingdom of Heaven is Like series, uh, which is our series on the parables that begin with that phrase where Jesus says the Kingdom of Heaven is like. And uh, hopefully you remember, if you were here last week, that I talked a little bit about how the Kingdom of Heaven is this multifaceted thing. Sometimes when we think about Heaven, we just think of it as this sort of floaty, ethereal realm that we're going to go to when we die. Uh, but when Jesus talks about the Kingdom, he means a lot more than just where we go when we die. And I, I've tried to break it down into four main components of what the kingdom of heaven is when Jesus talks about it, about it. So the kingdom of heaven is something that's coming in the future. It's the culmination of history. Sometimes history just seems like this mess of uh, unrelated events that don't really have any ultimate purpose. But, but the Bible has a different view, that, the, that everything is working towards this culmination of history, and that is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It's... It's what everything's working towards. Uh, some, second is it's something that's here right now. Uh, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is within his followers. It's within us. So it's something that's present right now. It's also something that takes shape, something that reveals itself wherever people are obedient to God's will, where they follow him. And then finally, saying uh, the kingdom of heaven is like, is kind of like saying here's how God handles things. It's a way of referring to how the king operates. So let's try and keep those four things in mind as we continue to, to go through the parables. But one of the things that we didn't really talk about last week is that the people who Jesus came to, the Jews, uh, they did already believe that a kingdom was coming. In the Gospel of Mark, it says that when Jesus first started preaching, here's how he kicked things off. He announced, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. And that proclamation demonstrates that this idea of the kingdom of God, it wasn't new to the people that Jesus was talking to. It would be pretty random to go around and say that to people who had no concept of the kingdom of God, right? So when Jesus shows up, it's like he's saying, guys, it's happening. The time is now. What you've been waiting for, it's here. So they had been anticipating a kingdom, and they had been for a while. Because for centuries, the people of Israel had heard prophecies that one day, God would establish a kingdom through their nation. And this would be the kingdom where things were finally the way that God really intended them to be. You know, in the world, there's, there's this distance that exists between the way things are and the way things ought to be, right? And the, this kingdom that was prophesied was this, this kingdom where the is and the ought would no longer have any distance between each other. Where the is and the ought would finally come together and everything would be as it ought to be. And the Jews expected that that kingdom was going to be ushered in by a really powerful leader, a figure that they called the Messiah. 
So in Jesus' day, people were really eager for the Messiah and the kingdom to come. Because at that time, Israel wasn't independent. It didn't seem like the great nation that they all thought it was going to be through which uh, the kingdom would come. Israel was under the control of the Roman Empire. And Israel had to pay taxes to Rome. Now that's why when you read the Gospels, tax collectors are spoken of so disdainfully. Uh, it's because tax collectors, because they collected taxes for Rome, were seen as a symbol of Israel's oppression. And a symbol of the fact that Israel wasn't everything that it was supposed to be. And so the people really wanted a Messiah to appear, and forgive me for this. They really wanted a Messiah to appear and make Israel great again. <laughs> they wanted a powerful king to arise and to assert dominance over Rome and over all other nations and to establish Israel as God's everlasting kingdom. So that's what they were hoping for. And then Jesus arrives and he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. But as Jesus came proclaiming the arrival of this long-awaited kingdom, people were really confused. Because he didn't seem to be making Israel great again. Right? Instead of punishing tax collectors, he had dinner with them. Uh, he even invited one to be his disciple. Instead of amassing a powerful army to fight, he gathered a pretty unimpressive group of men together to teach them and to send them out to teach. He initiated a teaching program. Instead of pointing to our par a particular place and saying, there's where the king kingdom of God is, he said, the kingdom of God is within you. And instead of killing his enemies, he let his, en his enemies kill him by hanging him on a cross. Now, granted, that didn't work very, wrong, very long, right? Uh, but even after he rose from the dead, he still upset expectations because he ascended into heaven instead of holding some sorry suckers I'm back parade and then bringing the wrath, right? He upset expectations all over the place. So people were confused by Jesus. They thought they knew what it would look like when the kingdom arrived, and Jesus wasn't fitting the bill. And so people were asking, how can this be the start of the kingdom? And the two short parables that we're going to be looking at today are, I believe, Jesus' answer to that question. In these parables, when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, it's like he's saying, the kingdom of heaven, yeah, it's not what you expected, but here's what it's like. So if you open your Bibles, uh, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 31. Matthew 13, starting in verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds... Yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. So we've got two images here describing what the kingdom is like. 
And what I've suggested is that these images are answers to the question that people were asking, how can it be that the kingdom has arrived? Now, in the first image, what Jesus seems to be saying is, it has arrived, whether it seems like it or not, because the kingdom starts with a very humble, small beginning, just like a mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed is a very small thing. It's about one to two millimeters in diameter, but it grows to something about 10 feet tall. So the height of the product of the mustard seed is about 3,000 times the height of the initial seed. So packed within that tiny little seed is this incredible power and potential. Now I wanna make a quick side comment about something. Uh, sometimes people who don't think the Bible is trustworthy will use this passage as an example of its untrustworthiness. Uh, because they'll say, well, Jesus said that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, but it's actually not. The black orchid seed is smaller. Uh, and there were people in Jesus' day who would have known that. So Jesus was wrong, the Bible is wrong, Christianity can't really be taken seriously. Has anybody heard that? Anyone? Oh, okay, well, <laughs> maybe it's just part of being in uh, campus ministry. Um, but I, I did hear that when I was in campus ministry. Well, I don't think that we need to be threatened by this argument, uh, because Jesus' point here is not to teach botany, right? He's, he's not talking like a scientist here. He's talking like a regular person. Uh, and, we, and we talk like this all the time. If someone said, New York City, man, it is the biggest of cities, but you could still get lonely in it. You wouldn't say, false, Tokyo is the biggest city, New York City is the second biggest city, your point is invalid. No, of course not, because the real point that's being made still holds up. And there is a sense in which New York City is the biggest of cities. It's not literally the biggest of all cities, but in the grand scheme of cities, it's the biggest of cities. So we have to be careful to read the Bible in the language that it was actually spoken in, with the tone. You know, language is a, com a complex thing, and sometimes we want to force upon it a very literal, scientific, modernist worldview. And this is an instance where that doesn't really work very well. So packed within that tiny little seed is this incredible power and potential. And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, the kingdom might not look like much right now, but this is a powerful seed that's being planted, and it's gonna grow into something far bigger than you ever would have expected. Now the second image, uh, in the second image, Jesus answers this question, how can it be that the kingdom has actually arrived by comparing the kingdom to yeast and dough? So why does he do that? Well, yeast has a very significant effect on the dough, right? It causes it to rise, and it permeates the entire loaf that it's worked into. You can't really see the yeast, but it's there, it will do its thing, and it will affect the entire loaf of bread. So what Jesus seems to be saying is that the kingdom is hidden, but it's at work, and it's going to have significant effects everywhere. All right, now before we go any further, I wanna talk a little bit about the challenge of interpreting these parables. If you've been here for a while, hopefully you've heard me use the phrase ostrich theology. Uh, ostrich theology is the term that I like to use uh, for um, when we say things about God or about the Bible while ignoring part of the facts. 
uh, especially facts that bother us. Just as the ostrich sticks his head in the sand and refuses to acknowledge what's going on around him, sometimes we refuse to acknowledge things around us, say, aspects of our experience or things that the Bible says, because they make us uncomfortable. We're not uncomfortable, we're not comfortable with uncertainty or ambiguity. Those are things that we try to stay away from. Um, and sometimes when we talk about God and the Bible, because we're uncomfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity, we end up doing it looking like the ostrich. And I so want St. Paul's Church to be a place where this goes on as little as possible. Uh, that's something that I'm really passionate about. I want our church to be a place where we're not afraid to acknowledge uncertainty and ambiguity. Uh, I want it to be a place where we can feel safe asking difficult questions. I want a church to be a place where we seek truth, even when the truth is messy or confusing. Does anybody else want that? I really want that. Uh, and the reason I bring that up is because in my own attempt not to do ostrich theology when studying these parables, I have to admit they're not as easy to interpret as it might initially seem. Uh, and I'll explain why. So, ready? We're going to enter into the world of uncertainty and ambiguity right now. And we're going to start with the problem of the birds. Jesus says that the mustard seed becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Now, what some people say is that the birds of the air are actually representing evil, representing demons. Now, the first time I heard this, I thought, I, I, what? I, how can that be? Um, and then, you, okay, normally when I prepare a sermon, so you guys know, I like to listen to a lot of different sources. I read different commentaries. I listen to different pastors and that sort of thing. And I looked up three sermons in a row, and all the pastors were talking about the birds representing evil. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I've, this is, I need to look, to look into this more. And some of the things they said were, were quite compelling. Um, so... Uh, I want to admit that this interpretation actually has some things going for it, and I'm going to explain that right now. Um, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I want to be very honest. I don't want to do ostrich theology, and so we're going to talk about this. So here's what it's got going in its favor. Two main things. First, this parable is told right after the parable of the weeds. Uh, and if you were here last week, Hopefully you remember that what the parable of the, of the weeds talks about is the problem of evil. Um, the problem is that the world has evil in it, right? Like weeds growing up among wheat. Um, and so what people will say is that because this parable follows the parable of the weeds, it makes sense that it has a similar theme, which would be the current presence of evil in the kingdom. The fact that there is evil currently in the kingdom. The second reason is that earlier, in the same chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus told another parable called the parable of the sower. And that parable also has a reference to birds. And in that par parable, Jesus says, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. And then when he explains it later, he says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. So just a little while earlier in the same chapter, Jesus told a parable where birds represented the evil one. So some would say it makes sense, again, 
uh, that in this parable the birds would represent the evil one. And those who are convinced of this interpretation will see the theme of the current presence of evil in the kingdom as running through all three of these parables that are grouped together. So um, you have the parable of the weeds in uh, 13, 24 through 30. And then a while later, you have the interpretation of the parable of the weeds, where Jesus explains it. And then sandwiched in between, you have these two other parables that we're looking at today, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the yeast. Uh, and they'll say that uh, the parable of the mustard seed, because of the birds, you can see it's about the presence of evil in the kingdom. And the parable of the yeast, therefore, is also about the presence of evil in the kingdom. And there's something to be said for that interpretation, too, because yeast is sometimes used as a metaphor for evil influence. A little while later, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So, you know, I can see there are some reasons to think that the theme in these parables of the presence of evil in the kingdom is in the, the current presence of evil in the, in the kingdom is sort of a common theme running through this cluster of parables. All right. And in my commitment to not doing ostrich theology, I want to acknowledge that. And if this interpretation is true, then what Jesus seems to be saying here is that as the kingdom grows, evil forces have a tendency to flock to it like birds, and evil influence, false teaching, will spread throughout the whole kingdom, uh, like yeast and dough. Uh, but as the explanation of the parable the weeds reminds us, after these parables, eventually evil will be removed from the kingdom. God will take care of that. The harvest will come, the weeds will be removed, and Jesus says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, whether or not Jesus was actually teaching about the presence of evil in the kingdom currently, there is a sense in which those interpretations ring true, right? Uh, it's true that when a church is growing and doing great things, it seems like the devil likes to mount a counterattack, right? Uh, rarely do you have substantial growth in a church or any kingdom-related activity without also having growth of problems along with it. Church growth equals growth of problems, too. I, at my, one of uh, the Gordon-Conwell Gordon Seminary uh, graduation speeches that I heard, the whole message was on this idea that, like, where there's life, there's manure. Like, basically, <laughs> you, you have problems where there's life. And um, so this parable seems to, could, this interpretation of this parable seems to be expressing that idea. Uh, and if the yeast in the second parable is seen as negative, then we can recognize a sense in which this is true as well. It's also true that false teaching infiltrates the church, that it has a tendency to spread, and that's something that always needs to be countered with truth. So if these parables are taken as being about the presence of evil currently in the kingdom, I don't think the conclusions that we draw for them are, are dangerous or false. Now, at this point, okay, if I haven't lost you, <laughs> you're wondering, okay, so is the first interpretation the right one or the second one? Are these parables about the humble beginnings and hidden power of the kingdom? Or are they parables about the presence of evil currently in the kingdom? Those are very different things. 
Which one is it? Now, I think some people, if you want to be diplomatic, might say, well, it's both. It can mean both. Um, I, I don't really think that's an option. Because if we say that Jesus intended his parables to mean multiple wildly different things, then we've kind of created a situation where Jesus' parables can mean almost anything. And when something can mean anything, it doesn't, it actually means nothing, if it, if it can mean anything. So now that I've admitted that ambiguity, I do want to make a case for why I, I don't think these two parables are about the presence of evil in the kingdom. Um, I don't think the birds are a symbol of evil. I don't think the yeast is a symbol of evil, and I'm going to explain why. But one thing I do want to say is that if you disagree, that's okay. If you're more compelled by what I just presented, it's all right. It's fine. Um, you know, there are some things in Scripture that are totally clear. But what, whether or not the birds represent evil in these parables, not 100% clear. It's not. But what is 100% clear, and if you hear nothing else this morning other than this, is that God cares a lot more about how we treat each other when we disagree than about whether or not we correctly identify the birds. One of my favorite passages in scripture is 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul talks about love. And he says, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I'm nothing. So if you or I can correctly interpret every one of Jesus' parables, but we can't love our brother or sister who disagrees with us well, then we have nothing. And I just think that's important for us to remember as we gather in small groups this week because you guys might have different opinions about what I've said this morning. And, you know, what you're going to do together is to try and live this out, you know. You, it's okay to feel passionate about a certain interpretation, but can you disagree and do it in a loving, gracious way? That's, that's what God wants from us more than, more than anything when we're discussing these sorts of things, is to demonstrate love to each other. So let's keep that in mind. That said, I'll make my case for why I don't think these parables are about the presence of evil in the kingdom. Uh, I think it's important when we look at the parables not to miss the forest or the trees. So I'm sure that most of you are familiar with that saying. It basically means that if you focus on the details, you can miss the beauty of the big picture. So if you focus too much on like one individual tree or the bark on that tree or a leaf on that tree, you can miss like the wholeness of the picture, which is, you know, the forest. It's a beautiful thing. And I think sometimes the same thing can happen to us when we're looking at the parables. When we're so concerned about the details, we can miss the full picture. So let's take a moment here. Let's uh, not focus on the details. Let's just take in the big picture of what Jesus is saying. Let's, let's picture it in our mind and feel it. So Jesus says the kingdom is like a mustard seed that gets planted and then it grows and the birds come and perch in the branches. Or the kingdom of heaven is like yeast in dough. So you notice in both of those parables, there's emotion, right? Emotion outward. 
It's a motion of expansion. So think of what scientists talk about when they talk about the Big Bang, right? I'm not, I'm not teaching about the Big Bang. I'm just saying think about it, okay? <clears throat> this tiny, tiny dot of hyperdense matter then just explodes outward. Right? So that's the feeling that I sense that Jesus is trying to capture here. The kingdom of heaven is like, boom! And so when you allow this image that Jesus is using to do its work, I'm not left with a negative impression. I think this is a fantastic, inspiring thing that Jesus is teaching. The kingdom of heaven is like, boom. Now you might say, okay, well, what about all those compelling reasons to think that the parables are actually about the presence of evil in the kingdom? Okay, well, here's a couple things to consider. First, let's look at the birds. Um, Supposedly, the birds are a symbol of evil because they symbolize evil in a parable earlier in the chapter. But we should recognize that birds don't always represent evil in Matthew's gospel. So just a few chapters earlier in Matthew 6, 26, Jesus uses this exact same phrase, the birds of the air, uh, but he doesn't use it negatively. He says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. So there the birds are this, this uh, symbol of God's tender care and provision. Right? They're not a symbol of evil. There's nothing negative there. Another reason not to see the birds as a symbol of evil is because this image that's being used to describe the kingdom, I'm sorry, uh, this image is of, of, of a tree uh, with branches that, that birds then come and perch in, that image is used in the Old Testament in a positive sense to describe a kingdom uh, where the birds represent other nations that are finding shelter in that kingdom. Uh, Ezekiel 17, 22 through 23, I didn't put the whole quotation there, you can check it out on your own sometime, but part of it says, on the mount, God is speaking, and he says, on the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it, uh, referring to a, uh, a cedar. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. And then, what about the yeast? Isn't yeast a symbol of evil? Well, not necessarily. Um, what yeast is a symbol of is the fact that a little bit of influence can have far-reaching effects, right? Uh, and yes, there are several times in scripture where yeast is used to describe the spread of negative influence. Jesus said, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. But in that case, he was talking about the yeast of the Pharisees. But here he seems to be talking about the yeast of the kingdom. Right? And it seems that in this case, the little bit of influence that's having far-reaching effects, it's not negative, but it's positive. It's the kingdom that it's, that's at work here, not something sinister. And then finally, okay, what about the argument that when you see these parables in context, especially next to the parable of the weeds, it seems fitting to see them all as having to do with the current presence of evil in the kingdom? Well, I do want to say that's a compelling argument because part of doing good biblical exegesis, part of 
reading the Bible well is not just reading a passage in isolation, but looking at what comes before and what comes after. That's, that's a very important thing. Um, but I want to suggest that it's possible to see a different common theme as uniting all these parables. And that would be the common theme that the kingdom of heaven will win. So in the parable of the weeds, it describes a kingdom that doesn't look like it's going to win. Right? Because evil people are spread throughout the kingdom. But the parable ends with the kingdom of heaven winning out because God separates the wheat from the weeds. The kingdom of heaven still wins. In the parable of the mustard seed, it looks like the kingdom of heaven isn't going to win because it has a tiny, humble beginning. But that tiny seed grows into a huge tree that all the nations find shelter in. The kingdom of heaven still wins. Right? In the parable of the yeast, it looks like the kingdom of heaven isn't going to win because the yeast is hidden. It's not noticeable. But over time, it reveals its power by making the whole loaf rise. The kingdom of heaven still wins. So here's what I think we should take away this morning. Two things to know and remember about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven goes boom. I know that's, that's corny, but you're not going to forget it. So <laughs> the kingdom of heaven goes boom, and the kingdom of heaven will win. When Jesus started the kingdom, it didn't seem like the kingdom had come. Right? It seemed too small, too, too hidden, too infiltrated by evil. But in these parables, Jesus promised that this humble, hidden beginning was just the start. And that's proven true, right? I mean, there are followers of Jesus now all over the world. Things started in this little corner in the Middle East, and now you've got, you've got followers of Jesus everywhere. But these parables aren't just about something that's already been fulfilled. They're about something that's being fulfilled now. Sometimes today the kingdom still does feel too small, too hidden, right? too infiltrated by evil. But you know what the good news is? The seed that was planted is still growing. The dough is still rising. And those weeds that have grown up in God's field, they will be uprooted when the time is right. So it's not always going to feel small. It's not always going to feel hidden. And evil will eventually be eliminated. You know, most sermons are supposed to tell you to do something. In my preaching classes, they would say, you've got to have an application. You've got to have something for people to do. But I don't think these parables are about something we're supposed to do. I think they're about something that's happening and is going to happen. And so my application this morning is super simple. It's just be encouraged. Right? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom where everything is as it ought to be, it's coming. Right? It can't be stopped. Even now, the kingdom is growing outward. Even now, it's rising. And nothing is going to stop that from happening. The kingdom of heaven goes boom. And the kingdom of heaven will win. So let's let that inspire us to live lives of real faith and trust in God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are God who works through humble beginnings and in hidden ways, God. We thank you that there's such power in what we would often perceive as weakness 
in our natural state. And God, we ask that um, as we uh, strive to, to carry ourselves humbly, um, that you would work powerfully through us. God, we thank you that we can have a confidence that you are at work, even if at times it seems hidden, um, and that the kingdom is growing, and that there is going to be a glorious result uh, to your working in the world that's beyond what we can even comprehend. And Lord, we, we want to be a part of that. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.